0: Was violent. I was in a gang. I did. And I was making guns and selling them for five bucks a gun in my life when I was younger. Uh, it was the only way to survive in Brooklyn.
1: Who do I admire more than myself? Nobody. We've got to get out of here. Leave it to me, Star Child. I'll bend these beams with my mind. We just basically got out of the seats in the audience and worked our way up to the stage, and the rest was history. <laughs> but it's really, as you tell me, which is the most important, the music or the show? Well, you know, you can't package a smoke bomb. Uh, you're, if you're going to sell records, you're going to have to sell music. Yeah. Um, it may not be everybody's idea of music, but basically, what we're doing is something that's a. We're just short-order cooks. Is such a funny man. You do good, Howard. (laughs) I (laughs) do?
2: He would get dressed up on the Kiss Tour as this character called The Bag. It was almost like the unknown comic at the time. He used to crack the guys and kiss them, you know, and they always always wanted the bag, you know. Ace Frehley used to go, hey, are you going to have the bag tonight? (laughs) Hey, hey. Hey, bring the bag over here.
0: (laughs) Where's the bag? Howie, where's the bag? (laughs) <laughs> the bag was just like would pop up every once in a while not that often it was just a face drawn on a big laundry bag you know they had these paper laundry bags and the beautiful holiday inns we used to stay in and i would pull you know make two holes for eyes and draw a stupid face on it and wear sweatpants and stick my arms through the sweatpants, so only my hands came out at the knee (laughs) and have the bag on and the bag attack like yours, And the bag was always drunk and really smart and knew everything and made a lot of, uh, you know, suggestions to people in the room. (laughs) And the uh, running commentary for a couple hours.
3: Usually the bag appeared in Ace Fraley's room. Yeah. Almost always in Ace Fraley's yes.
0: room. The bag would come over and entertain Ace. Because most everybody else would be very upset with the bag. Well, Gene would be upset. Gene was very, very upset with the bag. Yeah. And that made Ace even happier.
1: <laughs> into the cars and go to Denny's or McDonald's. I roomed with Ace in a two-story bungalow off in a private section of the grounds. Gene roomed with Peter. Each bungalow had two levels and several bedrooms and bathrooms. The first day, Ace went out for a walk, and I decided to take a shower. While I was in there, the bathroom started to smell horrible. I pulled open the curtain to see what it could be, and there was Ace sitting on the toilet taking a dump. He looked up. What are you doing in here? I yelled. There were other bathrooms in the place, after all. He just shrugged. Ace was odd. All
3: right. (laughs) Never gets old. Never gets
2: old. old. And on that beautiful note, Ace being odd, welcome to the inaugural episode of the Cultural Futures Exchange. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Jeff. That's our other co-host, Slip. Say hi, Slip.
3: Hi. I'm the one right. laughing uncontrollably at, at, the, <laughs> at the Ace Pooh story. It never, never gets old to me. I can listen to that over and over. <laughs> it's still funny. How, yeah.
2: How could that get old? Let's yeah. just be honest about that. So um, as you might have guessed, our guest, our first episode here is about KISS. But before that, let's tell you a little bit about what this podcast is and about and the general conceit of how it will work. So as I mentioned, uh, the title is uh, Cultural Futures Exchange. And the idea with this is really based on something that's happening kind of now in the, you know, 2021 timeframe, 2020 timeframe. Which is, there's this uh, music mogul guy uh, who created this equity fund called Hypnosis, which I guess is a play on the original sort of art collective.
3: They used to yeah, make it's album It's in the same way. Yeah. H I P G, you know, with Gnosis, like Gnostic, the classic, exactly. you know, they did all those covers like Led Zeppelin Presence and Houses of the Holy and tons of uh, UFO covers. Um, so it's, yeah, it's kind of a, uh, based on that.
2: Yep. And the idea is what they're doing is buying up the publishing rights to a lot of famous artists um, like your Neil Young's, your Bob Dylan's, a uh, bunch of the people in Fleetwood Mac. Uh, goes on and on, Red Hot Chili Peppers, um, other types of music. And the idea behind this is essentially making a bet, right, uh, that the publishing rights of these bands and these artists and songwriters are going to be worth more in the future than they are today. You know, they're paying, you know, Stevie Nicks $80 million or whatever for her song catalog, clearly making a bet that, uh, you know, 10, 20, 30 years in the future, um, they're going to sell, you know, teenagers' makeup with Edge of 17 or something. So, right. Or some shit like that. So the idea kind of, you know, percolated with us. It's like, well, wait a minute. Why don't we talk about some of the most impo- important uh, cultural uh, touchstones that we like to talk about in the same way. And really looking at how much they're going to be worth in the future. Are they going to be worth uh, more in the future, less in the future or about the same. And the general idea is that we're going to examine in, in our way, as it were uh, a bunch of cultural def- uh, artifacts, music, probably mostly, but not limited to music. It could be movies. It could be TV shows. It could be toys, pretty much anything we feel like, uh, but largely probably starting a lot with music. Well, we'll see where that goes and really evaluate um, the uh, context in which the music came out or the movie or the TV show or whatever came out, what people think about it today, if it happened, if they, when it came on the scene was, you know, a long time in the past, and then make a guess about, you know, the same amount of time going forward in the future where people are going to value it more or less or about the same. And and you'll get the hang of it as we get into it, and, and frankly, as we figure it out. So we expect that there's going to be a lot of uh, uh, tweaks and twists and turns as we uh, go on this journey. So thank you for joining us and doing so. The uh, first episode here is about the album Kiss Alive, as you might have guessed, uh, at least with Kiss, but specifically Alive, and the Kiss Alive era. And one other thing I'll just mention here as we go on is we're going to talk for some artists and some you know, directors or whatever it is, we're going to talk about multiple things that they did and sort of whether we're uh, short or long on their future prospects will change and twist and turn depending on what we're uh, reviewing and talking about and, and getting into. So it's not like every rating we have is once and for all. It's sort of like this particular item is influencing us this way or that way or whatever it is. And certainly with Kiss, there's a lot to talk about in their long history, and we're talking about some of the very early stuff. So again, just because we're saying up or down, yay or nay on this particular one, it's subject to uh, the twists and turns of all the other things we're going to be talking about in, in the in the future.
3: Right. So, and Kiss, is, Kiss is a pretty funny one to start with because they're so, if there's any band where you look at music as a business and we're looking at this cultural future idea and we're kind of casting it in a financial terms, you know, there's no perfect one to start with. That You know, there's no nothing more perfect than KISS. I mean, KISS is a corporate entity essentially and they're so tied in with the the idea of merchandising in the business. So it's kind of a perfect one to start with. Um, just that flavor um, just kind of lends itself to that even though we're not going to really be uh, talking about you know, it's not going to be so fun. You know, we're going to use a few terms here and there, but it's not going to be that. Uh, so we're not going to be doing the same thing as the Hypnosis Fund exactly. We're going to have more fun with it and talk about it in terms of our experience and and some of the history and context and what makes may make it important or not, and what may make it uh, last uh, stand the test of time. Uh, that's kind of what we're going for, I think.
2: Absolutely. And speaking of of kiss and what we think of kiss. Why don't we start off by talking about our personal sort of relationships with kiss and where we first heard kiss and how we first figured out who they were and all that. So slip why don't you kick us off with that?
3: Yeah. Yeah, I think um that's a good way to start. I think um you know, the funny thing is I'm going to start out by saying that I was, you know, even though I'm a I'm a few years older than Jeff and uh, you know, probably, maybe I'm a few years too young to have really been part of the KISS Army. I wasn't, I'll start out by saying I was never really a KISS Army kid. You know, when right. I first started getting into music, it was around the time KISS was out, but I was much more into disco. You know, I was like my first album I ever really got was Saturday Night Fever. And awesome. uh, I loved Earth, Wind and & Fire and ELO. And that's the kind of music I really liked. And by the time I got into harder rock, I went straight to Led Zeppelin and ACDC. You know, I kind of bypassed Kiss. My first memory of Kiss is, um, you know, obviously at Halloween you would see kids, you know, with made up like Ace Frehley or 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 Peter Chris or whatever. Um, you know, it was very common, and um, <clears throat> so it was around. And I definitely remember, um, you know, I had this friend Dale Dale Griffo. If that's not a freaking wonder years name, I don't know what is. But Dale uh, had rock and roll all over. And I remember seeing the cover and kind of thinking, "Wow, that's kind of cool." And and in the in inside the album, there was an insert for the Kiss Army, and I'd never seen anything like this. I, I thought this was crazy. Yeah. Um, But as far as the music goes, I, it didn't really grab me at the time. And then later, when I got into harder rock, it was, you know, it was just too bubblegum or something. And we'll talk about that because Kiss is a weird mix of things. Um, there's definitely harder rock in Kiss, uh, mainly because of Ace, I think but also Gene has some pretty heavy songs. But I mean, a lot of it was, you know, it was kiddie music to me by the time I got into stuff like Led Zeppelin and ACDC. Right. Um, and I also remember seeing the Dynasty commercial. So by the time, uh, you know, that came out, they were full-blown full disco. And by that time, my you know, I was I was on board with Disco Sucks. I was done, you know, with disco. <laughs> and I was completely into, you know, Led Zeppelin and ACDC. So you see, I was made for loving you, which by the way, I'll talk about later, because even though we're going to talk about Alive. live, we gotta talk about the legacy. I think I was made for loving you is gotta be in the top five disco songs of all time. I think it's a disco masterpiece. But of course, I at, at the time I was done with disco. I thought the dynasty commercial was ridiculous. And I think most people did. That was sort of when they started to go down in in popularity. Um It, it and wasn't then, the Elder. It, uh, well, the elder was later, right? We could talk about the elder <laughs> if you want to. Maybe that's a, that's a whole different episode. Probably, because um, the elder is is nuts. You know, it's crazy. Um, but but you know, so so I kind of was short on Kiss then. Um, but what happened is, and you know, when when I roomed with you in college, and we uh, Jeff and I were roommates uh, for a few years, and Jeff was really into them. So you know, you had Alive too, and I remember listening to that. And getting back into them, you know, I I got into them at that point. I kind of, I was into everything 70s. I think we all were, you know, in the yeah. late 80s, early 90s, there was this whole thing of, oh, yeah, remember the Brady Bunch and, you know, all that stuff. And I think Kiss was part of that for me. And that's when I started getting to Black Sabbath, too. I was never a Black Sabbath fan, but because it was involved with the 70s, I was pretty much into anything early 70s. Um, or any seventies, late seventies, in the case of Kiss. So you had a live too, and I remember hearing that. And you know, we kind of goofed on it, but I did like it. I recorded it. I had a tape of it. I listened to it. Um, I then, seem to what,
2: remember us like yeah. laughing at Shock Me for hours on end. I oh, mean, dude,
3: yeah, <laughs> something I love now. But right. uh, but Ace is yeah, Ace is uh, great singing on Shock Me. Is kind of Keith Richards style, yeah, monotone that he has, and it's it's so he's so kind of out of it too. You know, by that time he was so on drugs and shocked me. It's hilarious. So, so yeah, we, we goofed on that. And then after that, I I was living with my uncle uh, after college, you know, I, I didn't really have a job. It was the recession, 91, you know, and, and I remember going to this uh, Goodwill and seeing a copy of the debut album and the debut album has so many songs on it. You know, it's got so many of the classic songs. I mean, I would say, it's nearly perfect in that sense. It's got a couple of things like "Kissing Time, which was a promo thing they did for a kissing contest, which we'll talk about Casablanca and the bubblegum aspect in a bit. But, you know, it had that goofy thing. It had this thing called Love Theme from Kiss, which is an instrumental that sounds like the freaking Almond Brothers. You know, it doesn't even sound like Kiss. But then it's got Firehouse, Deuce, Strutter, uh, 100,000 Years, uh, Black Diamond. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty much nearly perfect as far as, the songs that the early songs of kiss that were major hits. There's a few that aren't on on there, which we'll talk about that, you know, really crystallized on live, but you know, the production is weak on that album and we'll talk about that more. Um, but that album really kind of got me back into the songs. And since then I would say I've been a fan, um, and that's where we left it, you know, it's, and, and I, I, you know, we could talk a little bit about the 80s too, uh, because my perception of them then was just as another hairband, which I think they were. Um, but I think that's a good point to hand it over to you. And what, what's your story with them?
2: Because yeah, you're the rem- one who got
3: me into them. So Yeah,
2: I, I remember as a kid, you know, growing up in the, in the 70s, right. I, I remember seeing them on TV. I remember seeing, you know, with the the stage show and just the loud and the, you know, the kiss light behind the stage and just going like, what are, what is this? You know, cause this was different. I had older, I didn't, I'm the oldest in my family kids wise, but, uh, I had older cousins and my uh, older cousins were like seven and 10 years older than me. So they had already gone like past all the rock stuff. And in the early eighties, for example, had already passed all the disco and were sort of into that. Well, I'm into the Clash now. Led Zeppelin sucks. ACDC sucks. That was like so high school or whatever it is. And my cousin Karen actually gave me a, a box of tapes that she had at that point um, and some records, but it was mostly tapes that she taped and dubbed from other people and copied off the radio and whatever it is. But it was like 60 different tapes of like ACDC, Zeppelin and Kiss was in there. And I remember listening to it and it, it wasn't my favorite, you know. Like I was much more into ACDC, of course. I remember um Dirty Deeds being like a an album for me there. I was just like, oh yeah, you know, I think it came out, I was in fifth grade, maybe something like that. And you know, of course, Big Balls was for a fifth grade boy, was well, for an older boy too, it's still funny. But the, you know, that was like super amusing. And and Kiss was in that mix, but I was really never into them until later on in the eighties where I was amused by their eighties antics. And we'll probably get into that in a, in a, in a future episode, but yeah, I got back into them. I liked a lot of their songs when I, you know, when I was a teenager, the, um, the main ones from the seventies, of course, the famous ones, your deuces, your strutters, um, and, and things like that. Their eighties stuff was so cringe, but the, (laughs) and again, we'll, we'll get into all that, but the, yeah, I, I really did like that 70s era and kind of the glam aspect of it. And, and this kind of and when I was getting uh, DVDs and or at that point, CDs, um, really into uh, getting those uh, albums like Alive and Alive, too. So that's yeah. kind of where I picked it up.
3: I, I will defend some of their 80s stuff, though, because, I mean, you know, a song, a good song is a good song. And, you know, I. I I do think that some of the hits, the albums are really bad. If you listen to the '80s albums, they're pretty bad. But some of the hits are memorable, at least. You know, like Tears Are Falling is really catchy. Yeah. Heaven's on Fire, um, but yeah, Crazy, I, crazy I, Nights. I, oh God, that was a. You know that that was such a. Oh God, that's such a bad song. That that was a, actually a huge hit in uh, Australia and Europe. It was around the world. It wasn't big here at all. But that crazy, crazy nights. That's that's. <laughs> getting toward the bottom of kiss. yeah, uh, that's probably their worst some of their worst stuff although when they try to do grunge that's a whole different thing and that's pretty much unlistenable. Uh well, if we go of Souls. Yeah.
2: If we go back to Alive, why don't you tell us about Alive and the history of it and when it yeah, came out and Alive all those good is, is the
3: point. Alive is the most important Kiss album without a doubt. You know, obviously Alive 2 is right up there, but Alive is what broke them. And, you know, just to just to go back and do a little Kiss history of, of them. All right. So yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit about the, you know, the origins of the band. Um, you know, obviously this is, uh, this band was started originally, um, by Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley. Um, but before that, uh, you know, they, they were two Jewish New York kids and Gene had, uh, was originally born in Israel. His name is Kaim Vitz. That's his real name. Uh, when he moved to the states, he changed his name for the first time to Gene Klein. Klein was his mother's maiden name. I think the reason he did this was he was abandoned by his father, and he felt like he should take his mother's original name. Um, and he eventually would change his name to Gene Simmons. Um, and Paul Stanley, his original name was Stanley Ison, and he changed his name to Paul Stanley, obviously. And the two met, and they formed a band called Wicked Lester. Um, Good name yeah yeah kind of a cool name uh wicked Lester was a a different animal than kiss you know there was a five-piece band they had a keyboardist um and they played they kind of played in different styles so they didn't really have a set sound um they had one song for instance that the keyboardist also played flute and they had one song that sounded like jethro tall they had other (laughs) songs that sounded like the beatles so they had no really uh no set sound and the two full you know soon realized that this isn't what they wanted to do. They wanted to do something big, they wanted to do something different, and they wanted to do something that had kind of a characteristic sound and something that was more straight ahead rock and roll. Right? So they recruited a drummer, um, Peter Chris, uh, Pete Criscola, I think is his original name, um, he had, he was our, a little our friend than who
2: them. was the weapons manufacturer. That's
3: right. That's right. So, you know, you, at the beginning of the show, you heard that quote with uh, Peter Chris talking about how he, he sold guns, something I don't believe for a minute. He said he uh, made
2: guns, not yeah, he even he sold guns. Yeah. <laughs> he had an iron forger. He had the whole thing. So. Right. Right.
3: Um, and then, and then of course you heard Ace Frehley's great acting. Ace Frehley was the guitarist they recruited. Um, and uh, you heard his great acting from uh, *Phantom of the Park* at the beginning of the show there. So, so they got together, and they were. Um playing in, in this kind of uh milieu of early kind of punk rock, New York, you know, they um, like the they New York dolls
2: kind of yeah New York
3: dolls. They okay. played with the New York dolls. Another band they played with was called the Brats. You know, they were kind of more of a glam kind of punkier, uh, more of a raw band. And then they played, also played another band that opened up for them once was called Sniper. And that was Joey Ramone's first band. So this is the kind oh, of context cool. they were in. Yeah. And, and they, um, you know, they, they originally started out trying to be like the dolls, you know, glamming up and they soon realized that wasn't going to work for them. They didn't, they weren't skinny enough. You know, they didn't look kind of effeminate enough. Um, they were definitely better musicians than the dolls, although it's not really saying much, uh, you know, dolls were kind of a train wreck from the beginning, but they admired them and they were part of that scene. Right. But they, they kind of had this idea of being characters, you know, Jean had grown up being into comics and science fiction and they so they they painted themselves up, you know. Gene was the demon, um, and he definitely would be the face of Kiss, you know. That is the most recognizable makeup of the four. Uh, Paul was the star child, you know, he would paint and paint the star on his um one eye. Uh, Ace was, I guess, the space alien, I don't know, the spaceman. Um, and then Peter was the cat, you know. So they they got the, they they got this makeup and they started playing around and they started building a following, you know. They had uh already some of the elements of the stage show um when they were found by this guy Bill Coin um who quickly added elements to their show i mean he was responsible for a lot of what kiss is famous for you know we get we give a lot of credit to Gene for the business ideas and the merchandising he actually didn't do any of that that was all bill coin and bill coin's boyfriend so bill coin was gay and he kind of you know uh uh Gave them some of the showmanship ideas they you know that they came up with, like the breathing fire. He actually had a magician come in and teach Gene how to do all that. uh, So was Bill?
2: Was Bill a manager of other acts at that point, or was this Kiss's
3: first? No, he had never managed any other band, and he told the band early on, "He's like, you know, if you guys don't want to take over the world, I don't want to manage you." Which, of course, Paul Stanley in his book talked about how weird it was for a guy who had never managed a band to have that attitude. But that's that's basically um,
2: what was he doing before Kiss?
3: He was uh, he was a television producer. So, yeah, he basically he basically was a television producer who just went off and decided he wanted to be a manager. He would eventually manage other bands too, like Billy Squire and other stuff. You know, nothing as big as Kiss by far. Um, But he basically told them that, you know, if I don't get you a record deal within two weeks, you can fire me. So he did. He got him a record deal with Casablanca Records, which was started by this guy, Neil Bogart. Neil Bogart was a former, uh, pops, you know, he had minor pop singles in, in the, in the, in the sixties. And then he was most famous for Buddha records and Buddha records was where bubblegum was, you know, all that chewy, chewy stuff, you know, and, um, you know, the fruit gum co and all this. And, um, that's kind of perfect for kiss in a way, because I think there's so many, so much of them that is bubblegum um and neil Burgart had just started this record company you know both of these guys bill O'Coin and neil Burgart, were financing everything with credit cards they were completely in debt they believed in kiss and he signed kiss and he originally interestingly enough didn't want them to have the makeup you know he didn't want them to do all that but they said that's a you know no go we're gonna and do he saw anymore.
2: them in person presumably and he said he didn't they want to make a
3: person and you know <laughs> they put on a show yeah. if you see some of that early footage i mean they're they're pretty great. You know, I think only over time would they kind of lose that. I think they definitely had something. You know, they had the stage choreography. They had the, the fire, the smoke, and all that. And so he signed them. They started recording albums. The first album, Kiss, has a lot of, as I mentioned before, has a lot of songs that you, you know you know them from. And um, it, they're great songs, but the, the production was kind of flat. You know, it didn't really capture uh, the energy of their stage show, right? And so it, not many people bought the record. They did this stupid promotion, uh, with a kissing contest and did this song called kissing time, which was added to later versions of the album. The the version of the album that I have is, has kissing time on it. Um, and then they, you know, it was kind of a gimmick and it didn't really play out. Uh, you know, they were on the Mike Douglas show. There's a famous thing with Gene Simmons on there, uh, you know, acting like Gene Simmons and, you know, sticking his tongue out and all this. And so. You know, then they came out with another album, Hotter Than Hell, and they decided the first album wasn't in the red enough production-wise. So they basically went the other direction completely and created this really heavy album that just sounds like absolute shit. You know, it just sounds like crap. It's got great stuff on it. It's got uh, Parasite, which I'll talk about later, which is one of probably my all-time favorite Kiss song, or at least in the top five. And um, it's got some good tunes on there, but it just sounds so bad. It's, It's just murky and muddy and you know it's distorted but in the absolute wrong way and then they came out with um the third album neil bogart produced himself dressed to kill and neil bogart told them hey you guys need an anthem you know you need something that the crowd can chant with you and that's why they came out with rock and roll all night party every day and that was a single but it didn't do anything you know it just didn't do anything and the band was just just you know, burning through money and debt and their show was really expensive and they weren't doing anything. So they, so Casablanca's like, look, you guys could just have to put out a live record. And so that's how we got alive. And we can talk about this in detail of how live alive is and Not we'll, at talk, all. we'll get into, yeah, it's, it's, it's Eddie Kramer. They brought in Eddie Kramer, who was originally, they got the guy they wanted to produce the first album, but they couldn't get him. And Eddie Kramer was a really famous producer. He'd worked with Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix and all these people. Um, You know, he was a really big name for them to get as, as unknowns. And he basically did all kinds of uh, magic on this, uh, live album. And what's funny is this was around the time when live albums started to become a huge, huge thing. Um, It was actually kind of one of the first ones to, to do that. Uh, Obviously. My theory is that Woodstock was really what kicked this off. You know, the Woodstock album was a triple album that was an bl- absolute blockbuster. You also had George uh, Harrison's Bangladesh album, uh, at the t- you know, a couple of years earlier, too. These were like huge, like, you know, big packages that sold a crap ton of records. And so it was just the time was ripe for live albums to take over. And Kiss Alive wasn't even the biggest of them. I mean, after Kiss Alive, you had... Uh, live bullet which i don't know if live bullet sold as much as kiss alive but it made bob seger's career and then the biggest one of all which is peter frampton frampton comes alive i mean you go to a garage sale you're going to see that fucking thing you know everyone yeah. had that record um you know it was a massive album and then you know it just followed with you know ufo strangers in the night and ted ted nugent uh, double live gonzo you know all Keep these track, live records
2: live trick at
3: Budokan, which is yeah. yeah maybe one of the greatest of, of them that was another one that broke that band that's a perfect example so um i think that that is basically uh what happened with alive you know they they the sound was better the song versions were better they were bigger um uh the album was originally uh i think it was a multiple dates but the biggest date was kobo i think it was called kobo arena in detroit and KISS was really big in Detroit. That's why they later did Detroit Rock City as a tribute to the town, because Detroit was a great rock and roll town, and bands would come through there, and the fans were just rabid, and KISS was huge there. There were a couple of guys, uh, I forget their names, but they basically were the KISS Army. KISS Army wasn't started by KISS. It wasn't started by Bill LaCoin. It was started by fans. And these fans would call up radio stations. They would say, you got to play KISS. They're my favorite band, because no one was playing them. So once Alive came out, those guys, you know, they did all kinds of things like showing up outside of radio stations with a crowd of people and just chanting kiss and, you know, doing things like that. And so this, this led to word of mouth. And of course their stage show was already attracting, you know, tons of people. They were selling out shows without actually selling records. This was already happening. So Alive was perfect. And and when it came out, they also released uh, the live version of Rock and Roll All Night and Party Every Day as a single. And that. Uh, became a top 10 hit became their first top 10 hit so as
2: well as being a bit of a lyrical uh tour de force <laughs> yeah
3: yeah yeah uh in the documentary history uh dave grohl who you know is in every documentary apparently we always need dave grohl's opinion on everything i'm surprised quest love who's the other guy who's in every documentary wasn't there talking about his love of peter chris if he had it um but he basically said, you know, rock and roll all night and party every day is like happy birthday. It's just a standard. And that's true. You know, whatever you say about the song, it's kind of this timeless classic in a way, you know. Yeah. And, uh So so that's basically alive. That's the setting. Uh, you know, that's that's what we're dealing with, the context of it and the significance of it. It kind of ushered in this huge uh, few years where live albums were dominant and. Uh, it was one of the early ones, for sure,
2: and speaking of that, uh, obviously it's an important one. It's early on in their uh careers. Let's uh, have you walk through your sort of uh your dossier on alive and how you think it impacts their long term uh futures uh value, yeah, if you would
3: okay, so yeah, just to start out with, I'm gonna say right up front i'm I'm long on kiss. I'm a buyer. I think uh kiss alive is an absolute classic uh, regardless of its live status um you know paul stanley always said you know kiss alive was not about capturing the actual recording and this is kind of a cop out it's funny um it's not about capturing the actual recording it's capturing the feeling of being at a kiss show so it kind of does capture some excitement even though it's manufactured uh to an extent. And we'll talk about that as I go through some of the, some of the songs. So let's start off with the first clip. This is Deuce, right? This is part of Deuce, the opener of the album. Right. So you can hear that little snippet. That's just a tiny snippet. Um, and you can hear the, that incredible riff. You know, and um,
2: it's a great song. I, yeah, I mean, it's a great song. It. It's
3: this is a Jean song, and you can hear Aces playing. And I, you know, one of the things they did say was that you know because of all the running around on stage, and main maybe because of some instrumental incompetence too, <laughs> maybe, um, maybe just you know, a they, tad, right? I said the thing they overdubbed the most was uh, the guitar, and you can hear Ace right up front there. And I think the guitar sound on this album is incredible. I think Ace is actually a really good player, uh, yes. at least back in those days. And um, when he was sober,
2: know, he he was a, he was a really good guitarist. And and in my opinion, and, and we'll get into this, it's the reason those early things sounded so great, where he was really the backbone of the band musically, really.
3: Yeah, I mean, music, he's a de- definitely the best musician. I think Paul and Gene both have some talent as songwriters. Um, they're not great players. I mean, Paul, originally the band, before Ace was going to think of being a power trio, but just Paul just couldn't do it. He was He's just not a lead player. Um, and uh, so I think uh, you really hear Ace's riffing, and I think that's mainly my reason for liking this stuff so much. I think you're going to hear me over and over again just talk about Ace. Um, but I love deuce as a song. I don't know what deuce means. Uh, you know, uh, it's <laughs> get your well, grandma out of here is a great, you know, uh, lyric. Um, but I don't know what the hell he's talking about. Your man is working hard.
1: I know um, what it means. Into the cars and go to Denny's or McDonald's. I roomed with eggs in a two story bungalow off in a private section of the grounds. Gene roomed with Peter. Each bungalow had two levels and several bedrooms and bathrooms. The first day, Ace went out for a walk, and I decided to take a shower. While I was in there, the bathroom started to smell horrible. I pulled open the curtain to see what it could be, and there was Ace sitting on the he toilet the taking deuce. a dump. That, he looked so, up. He's I mean, working, maybe doing hard, and working hard, here. Your man is
3: working
2: hard. Maybe, the place yeah. after maybe all. that is where, maybe Ace did that to Gene at some point when they were on the road, and that's where that song came from.
3: Yeah, Absolutely. Um, All right, let's 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 move on to the next one. So, so the next one I'm gonna play is uh, the next one we're gonna talk about is "Got to Choose." Got to choose. Got to choose. Yeah, you can hear some of the harm. This is this is kind of coming from the bubblegum side, I think. This is a great uh, catchy song. "Got to Choose," uh, you know, you hear that woo you know that, that those backup the backup vocals they they do the same thing on firehouse there's a lot of that yeah. and you can hear that beatles influence you know that that um you know obviously it's more of a rock song and but i i think when i think of got to choose or some of these other songs i think of like she loves you like to me that's uh kind of what they're going for and is you know obviously it's it's not uh it's not gonna compare to the great beatles and they would probably be the first to admit that, but. I do like that. Um, and let's move on to, so obviously we should talk about, we talked a little bit, the lyrics of Deuce. Let's move on to hotter than hell. Cause this is where we get the full spinal tap shit here.
1: Hot,
3: hot, than hell. Dumb, she's going <laughs> to leave you well done. It's like so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: they, they, you know, uh, their, their lyrics are best questionable, even on the yeah. best of songs. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, th- these songs, th- these first couple of songs are like, yeah, they're 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 kind of in the spirit of it, right?
3: Right, right. Yeah, and uh, I don't. Yeah, I think we're not playing more because we don't want to get you know sued. Um, just to sort of play a little snippets. Um, okay, Just to give so, you the so,
2: flavor out there. Everyone yeah. knows how to find the album if they want to hear it.
3: Yeah, exactly. I'm, I, okay, let's move on to the next one. This is uh, Come On and Love Me, just a little bit of that. There's Ace again. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. I love those lyrics. I I I I will defend those lyrics. Uh, I'm a romancer, a dancer. I'm a Capricorn, and she's a Cancer. It just flows off uh, the tongue, man. It's it's so great, even though you know it's ridiculous. <laughs> Incidentally, Paul Paul Stanley is kind of a Capricorn because he was born on January 20th, which also happens to be my birthday. So you Very know that's nice. pretty awesome. Um,
2: I, I just want to point out that this was the era. I don't know if it's the exact year, but like the the Pini Colada song, like Rupert Holmes, or no, it's a it,
3: few years earlier than that. Okay. Yeah, that that was like seventy seven, seventy eight. This is seventy five. So yeah,
2: there you. But, go. But I mean, this is the zeitgeist, right? Where yeah. like people, are, th- th- this is not. What's your I mean, sign? Yeah, yeah. What's your sign? Uh, I'm going to put a classified ad to find a new hookup, and oh, it's hey, it's my old lady. Yeah,
3: it's you totally. know kind. Of, <laughs>
2: I don't know if we'll ever get to that song, but that probably deserves its own episode of examination. Oh yeah, that's
3: great. It's great. I, Talk about lyrical genius. Uh, yeah. Rupert Holmes. Rupert Holmes. Great stuff. Um, okay, next, we're gonna move on to one of my favorite songs. We'll play a little bit of this, Parasite. Listen to that riff.
0: Yeah. yeah yeah that's i love that
3: good. riff and
2: um very zeppelin it,
3: it's very zeppelin-y and that it's heavier and that's because it's an ace song so ace didn't sing uh a lot of these early songs you know he wrote um obviously he wrote cold Gen, uh which we i don't think i'm going to play today but that's everyone knows cold jen uh gene sang that he did great gene did a great job on that um and um that's classic ace you know and then on the on the subsequent albums obviously he had uh parasite and strange ways uh from the from hotter than hell which are two of the heavier tunes um and parasite such a weird song you know it's got this parasite lady you know it's got such a weird melody and i think a, a lot of aces songs are like that they're you know vocal melodies are just strange like the way he sings they're um it's kind of uh syncopated it's kind of off the beat um, and it, they're really driven by the riffs. And I think Parasite is definitely one of my favorite Kiss songs of all time. Um, and it's really heavy. And that's the thing. You you hear these songs like Come On and Love Me and Hotter Than Hell, and they're kind of bubblegummy. I mean, Hotter Than Hell is a little heavy, but it's it's definitely got that kind of uh, you know old-time rock and roll thing going on, whereas Parasite is just firmly rooted in the early 70s. Um, and it's one of the reasons I like Alive more than Alive 2. I love Alive 2 as well. There's some great songs on there. Um, but I love the early heaviness of kiss and they kind of never really got that back. Yeah. Um, even in the eighties, I think they're, you know, even though they have some real shredders on guitar, like, uh, you know, Mark St. John and, uh, Vinnie vinson and, um, Bruce and these guys yeah. who are technically probably much better than Ace. Um, they just didn't have that edge. Ace, Ace, there's something so kind of edgy about his stuff to me that I really like, especially in the early days before. Yeah,
2: when he was sober early on, yeah. he was really, he was good. You know, I mean, he was, like I said before, he was the backbone of their band and made it really kind of a heavy band at times, like you're saying. Yeah.
3: You can hear the proto metal and we'll be playing a little more of that. Um, the next song is definitely an indicator of that. This is Gene. Listen to that. I mean, that's full on metal to me. Yeah. That's watching you. Obviously, the sound is great, but that's watching you. That's a cheat song, but you can hear that heavy guitar, dual guitar between between, uh, you know, kind of almost Thin Lizzy-like, you know, that proto-dual guitar you would hear in Judas Priest and in uh, Iron Maiden there. And uh, that's another one of my favorites from Hotter Than Hell. And if Hotter Than Hell sounded like this record, it would definitely be great. I... Also forgot to mention with Deuce, one of the things that you could probably hear in that clip in Deuce is crowd noise. So the crowd noise is constant through this album. It's, it's, it's kind of similar to Budokan, although I think Budokan, Cheap Trick Budokan, the crowd noise is all real. <laughs> you know, it's all, it's all what was actually there in Japan. Um, with this album, what happened was Eddie Kramer basically had a huge loop of crowd noise <laughs> you know, it was it was basically he, he boasted that he had there were no two bits of crowd noise that were repeated and he just plays it throughout the album. And you could really hear the cheering and deuce. It's almost like this ambient kind of wall of crowd noise behind that I think really enhances the power of the songs um, and it uh, enhances the energy. But of course, it's phony it's yeah. completely phony. <laughs> you know. It's like, it was that, you know, obviously I'm sure the crowds were going wild in their own way, but there was no way they were screaming like that through the whole song. Like, uh, you know, Ed Sullivan on the Beatles kind of thing, but that's kind of, the kind of thing he did. Yeah. I
2: mean, it's the, the crowd, but your point about the crowd is interesting. Like I think of other live albums and how it enhances it. I'm thinking of Scorpion stuff. I'm thinking of Iron Maiden, Live after death. You know uh a lot of the songs on there, and I was actually at that show. that's for a future yeah. episode uh so yeah, no, that makes sense the 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 live when it actually is live, it does it's a positive feedback loop in this case, it was probably from another band show that he got a crowd, <laughs> maybe not yeah. Maybe that's...
3: <laughs> yeah yeah, absolutely um so uh you know in a, in a lot of the tunes on here are are pretty heavy gene actually early on was writing pretty heavy stuff too of course he wrote deuce which is another absolute classic um and then he wrote she which is also on this album i don't think we're going to play a clip of that one but that's another super super heavy one that's kind of in the zeppelin sabbath vein um and there's a lot more of that in these early years Uh, another song that's pretty heavy this is a paul song uh from the first album a hundred thousand Great, great playing by Ace there. Okay, now we're gonna talk about the weak point of the album. (laughs) Um, If you kind of leave that on a little bit, you can kind of hear Peter Chris start playing. So this is the drum solo. You can hear how it's all flanged, and and uh, you can hear how, yeah, the, the drums are kind of muffled and flanged. So drums were not one of the, the, the things that was actually uh, overdubbed, but they probably should have been.
2: <laughs> Definitely should have been.
3: Because if there's a weak point in Kiss, it is Peter Chris. Peter Chris is a great vocalist. You know, he sings Black Diamond on the first album, and he's got this incredible gritty voice. Obviously, he did uh, Beth later in hard luck woman which was a paul stanley song that it is a, a spitting image of a rod stewart song he actually wrote it for rod stewart uh, but they ended up using it themselves because um chris definitely has that kind of rod stewart voice um but as you can see this drum solo is kind of uh it sounds like shit Let's just let's just be straightforward here. It sounds like absolute <laughs> shit. It's it's a muffled kind of flange thing. He's playing the same beat forever. This song uh, is about 12 minutes long live, and it feels like it's 100,000 years long. Uh, it's um, Yeah, it's more than half of the song is this terrible, terrible drum solo, probably one of the worst drum solos of all time.
2: So what what's interesting potentially about this as well, this drum solo and this just going on and on forever and being horrible is... Around this time, one of the bands that opened for them was Rush. So this was like around the fly-by-night time where Neil Peart had just joined Rush and they were touring. And can you imagine when you know Rush goes out, plays their, their opening set? I'm sure they are great, uh, of course. Gets off the stage, looks around, kisses on, they're playing, they're watching the show. And Neil's sitting there watching this garbage. Yeah. Can you imagine what, obviously, Neil being one of the greatest drummers ever, watching one of the worst drummers ever, can you imagine what he was thinking? Like the thought bubbles above Neil's head are yeah. just like, like They're bigger feel- than we are? Holy <laughs> <Yeah>. crap. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Like th- this guy's like, you know, like I can't even imagine what he was thinking. It was, it was probably like this was a child playing a toy or something like that. It's probably pretty yeah. ridiculous, and anyway. he would only
3: get worse. You know, I mean, uh, where the reunion tour, they basically had to teach him how to play drums again. You know, he didn't play because he was so into drugs and stuff. Yeah, but yeah, oh, listen to that. <laughs> I could play this shit, and I suck. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. does
2: Peter. Okay.
3: Anyway, right, on that that's probably enough of that. But thats yeah. I just wanted to mention the drum solo because, you know, the one thing with live albums that's always the worst part is the drum solo, with the exception maybe of YYZ from Exit Stage Left. You know, that's actually a pretty listenable musical drum solo. But even the best drummers, uh, you know, uh, it's boring as shit. I mean, you listen to Moby Dick on Song Remains the Same. You got one of the best drummers who ever lived just playing this boring crap. You yeah. know, it's – I'm just – I love drums. I'm not a fan of drum solos almost ever. Um, Neil is one of the few in rock. There's some jazz drum solos I like, you know, but the, you know, Buddy Rich and whatnot is impressive, but it's always boring to me. So I don't know. Anyway, that's, I'll kind of leave it at that. I I just want to say a few other things. Um, So obviously, also on here is, you know, I mentioned Black Diamond, great song. Uh, I remember hearing Black Diamond for the first time by the replacements. I didn't even know. Uh, the Kiss song originally when it came out. Replacements covered it on their album, Let It Be. And it's actually just a pretty straightforward, faithful cover. It's not, you know, any better or any cooler than the original. Actually, I think it's worse because I think, uh, you know, I think uh, Peter's vocals on it are phenomenal. Um, and then, you know, you've got Rock Bottom. That's kind of an a, a album track that never really gets enough attention. That's another uh, great track. Uh, that one, I think, is from uh, Dressed to Kill. And then you've got Cold Gin, Rock and Roll All Night, and then this one, Let Me Go Rock and Roll, which is pure bubblegum. That one, it kind of sucks. That's a kind of dream. That's kind of the record. But um, you, you missed one of the most
2: important parts of, of the record and one of the most important enhancements to uh, Peter Chris's.
3: Uh, oh, yeah. we got to talk about how... That's right. You, I for, completely forgot about how Paul Stanley... Uh, One of the most important elements of KISS is how Paul Stanley saves this drum solo. Paul, Paul absolutely saves this drum solo from being the most boring thing to being one of the most hilarious things ever. This is Paul first coming into his own as a as a uh as a banter stage banter master. I think uh, if Kiss has any Hall of Fame credentials, it's it's as it's for Paul Stanley's incredible stage banter, which is probably unequal. There are a few other contenders, but I think Paul's probably the master of this.
2: I would agree with that. And as it so happens, uh, we'll get more into Paul's uh stage ban- stage banter shortly here. So Yeah,
3: Alive is really just the beginning of this. I think uh if you're if you're looking at banner Alive 2 might be even better, you know, because he, he did this more as he went on. Like Cold Jen has this famous intro about, you know, how many people like to taste the taste of alcohol? You know, um, yeah. of course, in the get high and the alcohol being ironic since Gene and uh, Paul are total teetotalers of the band. Uh, so it's kind of funny to see Paul, you know, chant this stuff. Now, live is just the beginning of that. And, you know, that it really starts with this drum solo. You know, he said he was influenced by Steve Marriott of Humble Pie. who used to kind of get the crowd rolling almost like a, uh, uh you know, like a, a preacher, like one of these, uh, you know, revival tent preachers. And Paul... Is is doing that, and it's it's just great. You know, it saves this drum solo. The drum solo, Peter's just playing this kind of, I don't know what you call it. You know, just kind of this. Uh, he's just kind of hitting the snare and the toms, just kind of in the background, and they're all flangerized to try to hide all the flubs. And you have Paul come out and completely save the moment with this incredible monologue and this incredible crowd participation that he does.
2: Yeah, and, and the. Uh this is just the beginning of the interaction of Paul and the drummer for his uh, stage banter. I have a clip that we'll play later on that, that uh, takes it to another level, but um, what about their stage show at this uh, point? Yeah. I think,
3: I think you can't talk about them without talking about the stage show. I mean, obviously through the years, the stage show just kept getting more and more elaborate with these, uh, you know, different, uh, you know, they, they, these risers that would shoot them up in the, up in the, up in the air and, and bring them down and Paul, you know, uh, basically swinging around and doing the stuff like that. And, um, you know, obviously the costumes got more elaborate jeans, costumes, At the beginning, the costumes were very, uh, bare bones. I mean, Paul basically made his pants himself cause they were so poor. Um, and, um, It was basically a matter of them dyeing their hair jet black. They all did that. Uh, You know, they did the makeup and then uh, they had these huge platform shoes. I mean, eventually these platform shoes would result in Paul getting uh, hip surgery uh, just because they're so, you know, bad for you to stand on these platforms all the time.
2: Like Um, Prince had the same problem. Yeah,
3: Prince. Prince had the same problem. That's basically what killed him. You know, he was taking painkillers for all those years. I mean, he would do the splits and shit on his. Uh, But But basically, yeah, they had this stage show, they would do a lot of coordinated moves, and of course they had Gene breathe fire. Um, And Bill O'Coin, that was his idea, as I mentioned before, he had a magician teach him. And and there's a clip, if you have that, of of Bill O'Coin talking about that.
0: One of the scariest things that happened, happened with the first show The Kiss did for Casablanca and O'Coin Management. It was at the Academy of Music. Well, we had put the show together and we had pyrotechnics, we
3: had a candelabra, Jean was spitting fire, we had smoke, and we also had little balls of flash paper, which Jean would go to the candelabra and then throw up in the air, and they would just light and explode in the air. Well, the first night, Jean was so nervous that when he took the flash paper, instead of throwing it up in the air, he threw it into the audience. And, oh my gosh, it hit one of the guys sitting in the first row. A real rock and roller,
0: but he was singed
3: yeah so so gene burned his hair a couple of times too you know he he, there's actually clips on youtube you can find of gene catching his hair on fire um doing that fire breathing stunt yeah and then of course you know gene would do his bass solo uh which is a terrible bass solo we'll probably talk about that more in a future episode on the subsequent years of kiss but but you know at the time he would spit blood and it was pretty impressive to see um you know, so the, their stage show was something else. I, I don't think there was really anything like it. I mean, they were definitely influenced by David Bowie a little bit, mainly by Alice Cooper. Alice was did a much more kind of dramatic and elaborate stage show where he would have these different characters come on stage and it would be this whole drama playing out. And Kiss was like, well, we like that, but we just want it to be part of the show. We don't want to have this kind of play going on. But yeah. They were definitely influenced by him with the makeup and everything. I mean, he was really the first guy to do it to that extent. And I remember
2: no. about Alice Cooper. I remember seeing something on TV when I was a kid where Alice was like in a straitjacket being wheeled through like a mental hospital. Yes. And just thinking it was really disturbing and it freaked me out as a kid. And I was like, what is this? This is crazy. And so I remember that being like, kind of gave me nightmares, honestly, like the Alice Cooper, whatever that album and tour was with the straitjacket. And that was kind of crazy back Is It was, It had to have been like the mid seventies somewhere. Around. Oh, yeah.
3: Yeah, that was really early on. Uh, that was probably mid-70s because I think the straight jacket was all part of um, either Welcome to My Nightmare or From the Inside when he was actually in rehab. He kind of had this whole Nurse Rosetta thing he would do. So it could have been later. I mean, there was also the thing where he would put his head on a guillotine and they would cut it off and it would be this fake head. You know, it was really awesome stuff. Um, really groundbreaking. And I also, you know, think Alice Cooper musically is I probably like him more than Kiss. You know, I think he's great. But, but you know, they did all this stuff, and it was really mind blowing. I think for people at the time, and it's you you can't really, uh, you can't really diminish their contribution to that. And I don't think anybody's matched them in terms of that. Really, maybe Ramstein. (laughs) Have you ever seen clips of Ramstein? Their shows are insane. Yeah. Um, Just the amount of money and production is is really incredible. But you know still Kiss is well-known for this. And that's what people, that's what triggered the reunion. People wanted to see that again, you know? Yeah. Um, obviously, uh, we'll talk more about Paul's banter being part of that later, you know, during your bit. Um, and then, um, let's talk a little bit about the marketing. Cause I was always under the impression, you know, Gene has written all these books. He has this book called on power. He's got these books on business. He's got a whole room of kiss memorabilia that's in that history documentary. Um, you know and you were always led to believe that this was his idea from the start you know that that this was um
2: the kiss casket all that right the bullshit. kiss casket
3: and all that stuff was his idea it's actually not true this was all billa coin so billa coin was the one who put together the the kiss merchandise um you know they had uh the the makeup and kiss makeup your face kiss kit you could buy they had a board game eventually had the kiss credit card the kiss casket that was all after billa coin uh, the band had dumped of Coin due to his drug use in the early '80s, but they had, you know, so much merchandise, and they they made millions and I mean hundreds of millions of dollars on the merchandise. The merchandise probably has made them richer than the album sales or the tours. Um, although the tours, especially in the '90s, were really lucrative. I mean, they made millions and millions of dollars on that reunion tour. Um, but yeah, and then, you know, and so Gene gets all this credit for this, but really, he. Is the recipient of it even to this day? All the ideas that Gene has for merchandising have come from other people approaching him. So, this perception of him as this great businessman. Now, I do think Kiss were smart about a lot of things, but they also made a lot of bad mistakes. One of these was it's 78 when the band was having a lot of tensions because drugs, they created these solo records, and um, the solo records were shipped like Kiss records, they were shipped at a million units per, even though they were released at the same time. And usually, you know, you'd have one kiss album and if they shipped a million, they would definitely sell more than a million at that point. All the, all of their albums were platinum by this time in 78, but these, uh, these solo albums came out and there were commercials and I don't really remember these, but they were there and, and they all bombed. They were all, all bombs. The only one, uh, the one that I think that sold the most might've been jeans, but the only one that had a hit was, uh, Ace Frehley's. He had, a uh, a cover of a song by this glam band called hello called new york groove and that uh, that song was such a hit that kiss started would actually play it live as well and the ace album is fantastic i would say if i had to list my top favorite kiss albums ace would be somewhere in the top 10 just his solo album alone it's actually a great rock album and the songs would have been you know there's songs like Snowblind. One of the many songs called "Snowblind," all of which are good. Black Sabbath, "Sticks" and, and "Aces" are all fantastic songs, and you can't make a song called "Snowblind" and have it be bad, I guess, because "Aces" is is amazingly catchy. It would be a, a cla- it would be one of the best Kiss songs if it had been on a Kiss record, and um, so his album was quite good. Uh, Paul's is pretty good too, right. because Paul's just sounds like Kiss. It kind of sounds more like Dynasty Kiss, so it's got it doesn't have quite that edge of you know uh the stuff they were doing on love gun and you know uh rock and roll all over and before but it it, you know the song quality is there jeans is a weird one because jeans is very beatley and um you know it's got some ballads and even does a cover of uh, when you wish upon a star that's excruciating to listen to so his is probably the third and then peter's is uh Unlistenable. You know, it's basically like him trying to do R and B, and it's kind of cool that he tried to do something different, but you know, with songs like <laughs> that's the kind of sugar papa likes, you know, it's not gonna be really listenable. Um so those those were a complete bomb, you know. And so as to their marketing genius, I think it's been a little overstated, but I still gotta give it to him because you know, that was in advance of Star Wars action figures, you know, they had kissed dolls and stuff. So they were they were kind of ahead of their time in that way. I think uh, even though we can talk about maybe how crass that is and how, you know, maybe that's a mixed uh, judgment on their legacy. I think overall, given the stage show and everything, uh, the early, especially alive with how edgy some of the songs are and how the quality of the songs, I think it definitely stands the test of time. And so that's why, you know, overall, given even the terrible drum solos and the you know, the flubs and the overdubs and, and, you know, the kind of manufacturing of live album, I still am going to, going to buy into Kiss. I'm, All right. I'm definitely, so especially this Long-term
2: decades from now, people, more people will be into listening to this era, a live era than today. So
3: there may even be a Kiss band, you know, some of these bands, I mean, they've talked about, you know, Oh, we didn't talk about the Kiss football team either. That was a stupid. (laughs) We don't have enough time for all their (laughs) stupid shit. Um, But, but, yeah, but in any, I already went off enough on a tangent on the solo album, so I won't go any further. But I'll just say that, yeah, I think, um, I think there may even be a Kiss. You know, maybe, maybe it won't be Tommy Thayer or Eric Singer, and you know, certainly Gene and Paul. You know, even though they're they might have a good 15, 20 years left given they didn't do any drugs, you know. Rockstar ex- life expectations usually unless around 70, Aussie. 60 to 70, and they've already passed that. Yeah. Yeah, unless yeah. you're Aussie or Keith Richards, you're like Richards, the, you're sa- the
2: sand- guy made of sand in, but, in uh, the, uh, what's that uh, movie with the Hellboy? That's what I was trying to get at. The Nazi made of sand, you know, you're not a real oh, person. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like these Walking Dead figures. But anyway, that's, I'll leave it at that, and now let's hear yeah, what you
2: so, think. Yeah, <laughs> so, I, look, I like this album, as you, we were mentioning. I like it a lot. I like a lot of the songs on it. I, I think for its time, and, and when you include Alive 2 and, and all the related stuff around this era, it's really a nice uh, piece of work. The songs are catchy. If you watch the really early Kiss live stuff, around 75. It's like, yeah, they're a pretty decent band and they'd be really fun to, to, to see. Um, one of the biggest problems that I have with this is that it's, it's phony though, you know, I mean, it, it, it's like the whole thing is supposed (laughs) to be, uh, I get it, uh, you know, live, right. And I get it. They're saying, well, it's manufactured to make it seem like it was live because they want to give the impression of a live album. That's great, but it's still completely phony. It's you know, not real. They re-recorded it in the studio almost completely. And depending on who you talk to at what level of you know recollection they have, whether it's Kramer, whether it's Peter Chris, or any of the other ones, essentially they redid the thing in the studio. And one of the things that I think about, and this is going to be an ongoing theme, I think, as we we go through this journey with this concept, which is there's this Pro, uh, pro Tools era after and getting into auto-tune and then everything before and and although this was definitely before pro tools it was sort of like the proto pro tools and that's like we didn't like how we sounded live which was probably pretty awful so we're gonna go and re-record it and create something phony and and i and i think that if you go in the future you know 20 30 40 years People will look back, and everything kind of in the Pro Tools era is going to be suspect unless proven otherwise. And there's plenty of bands and musical entities that have the chops and have live stuff. Where it's like, yeah, we may have used Pro Tools, or we may, but it was just as a as a mechanism to record our stuff. We weren't using it for studio magic and and all that kind of stuff. So, I, to me, first off, the thing's not even genuine. And it might sound interesting. It might sound okay. But it's not live and claiming that it is just, you know, erases some of the patina of coolness to me just on a, right. you know. um, the, the other kind of general thing to me about this is that, I mean, you covered a lot of this and I'm going to play some of their, uh, you know, stage banter clips, especially some of Paul's stuff.
3: Yeah, totally. But I do
2: want to say a few positive things because I think a lot of the things I'm going to say subsequent are going to not be so positive. And, and uh, as you may guess, I'm probably going to go short here on, on Kiss in this era long term. But I do think that they do deserve a lot of credit for as many of the things that you covered, right? Their, their live show early on was completely groundbreaking. And when you compare what they were doing and, and the makeup and the lights and even lighting themselves on fire, which... Many bands did subsequent, including Motley Crue and others, to, you know, bad effect. Um, They really originated a lot of that. And and when you compare their stage show with other bands at the time, even other great bands, like you mentioned, Sabbath Rush, even, uh, who obviously musically was in another universe compared to them. And the stage show that Kiss put on was was pretty phenomenal and very eye-catching, and they do deserve a lot of credit for that. I also think that they were uh, very influential, even their music, right, to a lot of very important, uh, you know, subsequent bands. And I'm not including Dave Grohl in that. Sorry, Dave. Uh, But, you know, like a lot of other bands of that era and later, I think were heavily influenced by them or thought that they were doing something cool, including Rush, including UFO, obviously, who had great musicians in it um and other bands like that and so it's it's hard to doubt that they you didn't say they didn't have an influence they did
3: yeah i think uh that's something i forgot to mention and i think that kind of gives my case a little another bonus point there because you think about all the kids that picked up guitars or or you know started bands uh Kiss had a big influence on kids yeah. at that age, you know, kids like that were eight or nine years old and might be ready to pick up their first guitar. Ace Freely was their original guitar hero, right? Or or maybe they wanted to be like my friend Bob, who plays bass. Um, you know, he he's a huge, even in his music that he writes, you can hear Gene Simmons. Gene Simmons was his first influence before he got into Getty Lee you know, and, and stuff like that. And before he got into punk rock, which he was really into too. So Gene was his, he wanted to be Gene as a kid. So, I mean, that, that happened to a lot of kids. I mean, even in that documentary, like History, Tom Morello, whatever yeah. you think of Rage Against the Machine, Tom Morello is one of the greatest yeah. guitarists of the last probably 30 years. You know, he's a total innovator and he was listening to Ace, you know, Ace was his first influence. So, I think that's something, a point that I didn't make that you made that I think kind of is a, is a good point on their fa- to their favor. Yeah,
2: and I think it's totally true. I just think that over time, those sort of uh, tentacles into other bands and other histories sort of get diminished and eroded and not right. as out in front. So I, I do think it, it, it diminishes its importance in, in terms of our valuation over time. Um, the other thing I'll say is, Outside of Ace, when he was sober, they're all pretty horrible musicians. I, I mean, they just are. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're they're hard to take. It, when you watch some of the live things, uh, when Ace isn't sort of driving the band and out front with his guitar early on, Ace sounds really good. The rest of them can hardly play their instruments. And Paul, that's fine; he's the singer. But Gene is a horrible bassist. He's just a horrible, horrible bassist. Uh, Peter uh, Chris is even worse as a drummer and. I just think that over time, especially when you're looking at uh, going back in, in the, like I said, the pro tunes, uh, uh, pro tools, rather, uh, you know, the real versus phony, the, the fake musicians and the, the horrible musicians are just not going to hold up well against your, you know, other types of bands that were actually really good musicians, you know, of that era. Your David Gilmores are in that era, right? Your Eddie Van Halen's are in that era, right? Starting out and, and such. And there's many, many more. Uh, Tony Iommi's, and it goes on and on. So,
3: and to your to your point about that, you know, one of the things that Kiss did that I didn't mention that is definitely on the shorting side is uh, Bill A Coin would would basically rig these polls you know there were polls like in circus magazine and these other rock magazines of like who's the best guitarist right you probably remember these yeah uh from the early 80s when it was led zeppelin would win everything except bassist right you would have the best drummer john bonham you would have the best guitarist jimmy page the best singer robert plant and then the best bassist would always be john entwistle which i think short's John Paul Jones, who I think is as good or better than <laughs> John Entwistle, one of the greatest bassists ever, actually. Um, and then you had Rush winning them, right? Like Jedi right. would win bass, and then maybe poor Alex would never get his just due, because I think he's also one of the greatest guitarists ever. I agree. Um, but you would obviously have Neil Peart winning drums, you know. But in the early days of these, you know, uh, Bill O'Coin would, and 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 Casablanca Records would, uh, you know, I think the, the guy's name is... Um, I forget the guy's name i read a book on casablanca records by this guy harris uh neil harris maybe is his name he was a kind of the right hand man of, of of neil bogart and he dealt with fm radio and stuff and he would also deal with these magazines they would totally rig these polls by get you know sending in tons of votes to get ace as the best guitarist you know and and peter as the best drummer which is especially a joke so you know it was kind of fabricated that they would they, they were regarded as these great musicians when they really, you know, even Ace, as good as he was, was nowhere near being the best guitarist around, you know, no. I mean, you've got guys I, like Jimmy Page himself and you've got, you know, uh, later Eddie Van Halen obviously won all those polls, but then you've also got um, even Michael Shanker in UFO is one of the greatest guitarists uh, at the time, you know, so Ace yeah. was never in that pantheon.
2: Well, and you have, you said Alex Lifeson, you have uh, other people who weren't in this hard rock thing like Mark Knopfler, you have oh, yeah. David Gilmore, you have, I mean, the list goes, I mean, all the, the guys 70s, who
3: played on those Steely Dan records, you know? Of course, yeah.
2: all the Steely Dan stuff, you know, they're all amazing and and it goes on and on of that era. And so, yeah, the, the, my favorite thing is kind of summing up about how horrible musicians they are. is actually comes from Getty Lee, who in general has very favorable things to say about Kiss. Kiss was pretty generous to them in terms of, touring and giving them sound checks and things like that but there's a quote by J- Getty Lee and I don't have the clip but something where he always when he talks about kiss um, or several times at least he'll say say what you want about them as musicians but then dot 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 you know uh, you know say what you want about them as musicians <laughs> is they're complete garbage I mean and compared to rush most bands are fair but uh, you know they're, they're, they're just garbage as musicians and and to me over time just personally, I appreciate the good musicians more and more and more, especially when you're getting into eras where, you know, you have auto-tune, you have, you know, secret uh, studio musicians playing on albums um, that weren't listed, which this band in particular we're talking about has a history of doing too that we'll, you know, get into. So that's sort of the idea there. Um, Beyond that, I I am going to play some of Paul's stage banner to play us out here. A little bit, and before I give my uh, final uh, summary, but I think if you look at their history and you look at what they put together, it, the whole thing is theatrics, and part of that is make believe. And they would sit here and say, "We are putting on a show. We want to entertain people. How we do it and how we get to the end product is really immaterial. What we're really about is you know creating this image." And, and okay, fair. Fair. I, I think that diminishes their estimation um, and esteem over time. But I also think that you know th- that that also plays into it that that they are everything about them is sort of phony. Um, and lip syncing later on in their careers. Oh, yeah. They'll talk about the, f- the the fact that you know all the reality show nonsense they've been involved with. Like all these things I th- I think have a deleterious effect on their, you know, long term uh prospects. And then, you know, you, you can't we are talking about Paul and we are talking about his the, the stage banter. Um and you can't divorce like how they could um composed themselves um, and how they presented themselves as part of the story here. And and I think Paul, you know, when you play stuff like we got it! You have stuff like that. You have the alcohol thing we played before. The fact that they're like anti-drug teetotalers. There's videos of them, all, the, all sorts of jingoistic stuff around 9-11. That's kind of a little hard to take. There, there's stuff about like this. Alcohol!
1: And I tell you when we won't get going,
3: <laughs> we are going to be taking no Dude. Southern Comfort, no, no! <laughs> <laughs> Dude! You know, I have a funny story I have to tell right now, just real quick. So my uh, my wife's cousin, Melanie, uh, she lived in Denmark for a while. And in Denmark, they drink this stuff. I think in, you know, around Scandinavia or that part of Europe, they drink this stuff called glug. And it's this kind of Christmas punch that's just got all this booze in it. And it's really sweet. And it's like the... I mean you want to have a hangover this is the main ingredient i mean this stuff is nasty you you drink this it tastes really good you get drunk yeah. the next morning you feel like you got hit by a truck you know and uh the funny thing is you know when gene when sorry when paul does his banter about you know drinking and tequila and all this and cold gin you know he when he toured europe one of the banters uh that he one of the things he did was he tailored it to them so he he says he says how <laughs> you people like to drink glue. i love glue. you know he just like i love glue. it makes you feel so good and it's yeah. like so funny that he would you know tailor his banter to the region uh you know so yeah so hilarious he
2: you know anyway. one of the things that uh you'll see on some of these clips is he has the same recycled stories that he makes up uh, where, it, again, it just lends oh, yeah. to the phoniness aspect to me at least, like <laughs>
1: <laughs> <What>? I
2: mean <laughs>
1: like, yeah!
2: I mean, you know, come Can on i Give him credit. You know, this was in an era, probably, where he didn't think everything was going to be recorded and played forever on YouTube. And he's in the moment. And he's trying to be entertaining. But, you know, it's a little cringy, right? And these are the sort of things that get highlighted in equal sort of bold letters over time as you, right alongside of Deuce. So, uh, there is one
3: That's right. Well, that's a that. There's one thing on your side right there. Who yeah. wrote Detroit Rock City? You know, yeah. There's probably Bob Ezrin wrote a lot of it. You know, he wrote the bass line. He did. He taught Peter how to play the drums. Uh, you know, as to whether Paul wrote that or not is another issue. I, uh, he claims he wrote it, but Bob Ezrin I, had a huge, I mean, huge part. Of I right think the, now, the
2: other so. larger point you're bringing up is you know if you're going to go down the road of we have artistic license to recreate whatever we want in the name of entertainment, that how far does that go? How deep does that rabbit hole go? I mean, did they even play on the recreations of the live albums? And in later on the live two, uh, uh, Bruce, uh, Bob Kulik played uh, some of the songs on that. So yeah, yeah. so uh,
1: I, I mean, I'm not Bruce, saying right? one
2: thing or another. I wasn't there, but it just brings into question. You know what I mean? A little bit.
1: This dedicated to all the right. girls and- Know how to press those buttons make you feel good i i mean this is
2: not oh gonna God. wear well over time that kind of thing
3: right i i just yeah yeah it's like it's really interesting i uh you know we want to talk about what kind of people these guys are right too and uh i think uh i think um you know this whole uh this whole kind of groupy thing and the, and the sex thing, it's, it's not playing that well, even now, you know, uh, I have a story to tell about this because in preparation for this, you know, I listened to Paul's audiobook and we of course heard that great clip of, uh, <laughs> that never gets old. Um, the ace bathroom clip. Right. But you, I also listened to Jean's book and I, um, into to yeah. the
1: cars and go to Denny's or McDonald's. <laughs> I roomed with Ace in a two-story bungalow off in a private section of the grounds. Gene roomed with Peter. Each bungalow had two levels and several bedrooms and bathrooms. The first day, Ace went out for a walk, and I decided to take a shower. While I was in there, the bathroom started to smell horrible. Horrible. I pulled open the curtain to see what it could be, and there was Ace sitting on the toilet taking a dump. He looked up. What are you doing in here? I yelled. There were other bathrooms in the place after all. He just shrugged. Taking a dump.
3: Taking a dump. Still good. <laughs> so so yeah, that's a that's an incredible uh clip, right? So so the Gene audiobook, uh to Paul's credit, his book is much more about the music. Obviously, he's talking about Ace there, and, and it's not about the music. But Gene is like so much of his sexual awakening. Yeah. I mean, this book is like Portnoy's noise complaint. Kind of, it's like so explicit. So one thing I'll do is, you know, at night, sometimes when I take a shower, I'll just put my, you know, my, uh, my kind of uh, audio player and play like a podcast or something or part of an audio book. So I was listening to the Jane book last night and he was telling this whole story. He's like, I met this girl and I, I took her, <laughs> I, I, t- I took her virginity. And he's talking about taking a virginity and how he's trying to break through the hymen and how he woke up the next day and the sheets were covered in blood. It's so gross. It's so disgusting. Ugh. So I get out of the shower and Barb's, my wife, is in the other room. And she's like, she's like, don't you feel like you need to take another shower? After this? <laughs> <laughs> she's all, I heard all totally. of that. I don't want you to tell me about it. I don't want to talk about it. That was in." disgusting she was just completely offended and um it is gross i mean he talks about how like girls when he was younger would like want to see his tongue and they would want you know him to perform on them and how they were all attracted to him because of his tongue i don't believe that for a minute i think that's all fabricated i i think the only reason gene got girls was or women was because he was in a band and when they got famous i don't think anything about these early stories but that story of the virginity was just it's so painful to listen to and she was just like yeah don't don't listen to that please around me yeah
2: i mean that that's just another example of of just ridiculous stuff that's not going to play well i mean and i agree with you about the women and unless there's a lot of ladies that are into key rock the yeah, Unfrozen Caveman lawyer, I don't really think uh, <laughs> totally.
3: Yeah. And and, and I wanted to play some clips from that Terry Gross interview from 2002 that he did for his book, and it's just too hard to listen Dude, to. He's such an asshole. I, yeah. I
2: mean, the
3: guy is like one of the worst human beings on earth in a way. Um in a lot of ways. Probably, yeah. You know what's real but... funny? There's a girl
1: sitting on this guy's shoulders all over here. And this guy <laughs> cannot figure out why your shoulders
2: are soaking wet. Yeah. Yeah, Paul. Uh, again, the, the, the purpose of this is just to kind of show th- this, uh, here we are. Uh Some of this was not recorded in the 70s. Some of this was probably later, but, you know, yeah. 20, 30 years later. It's it's so cringeworthy just listening to it now. A couple decades from now, people are going to be like, were these guys in jail at some
1: point? Like. Yeah! It, it, Even if it's dirty, are you sure? <laughs> Even if I'm going to talk about oh my F- E, X. All right, here goes.
2: Listen. I mean, I, I can go on. It. I don't yeah, really want to hear it. Yeah, yeah, you get the idea. I wasn't <laughs> yeah. going to play it. It, it, but the, the whole—it's a lead-up into Love Gun. So he goes on to talk about how he sees this woman in a hotel and he have have the encounter that he describes that I will uh, edit out here, uh, uh, live here, because no one needs to hear it, get the idea. And then, you know, it, that it wasn't his uh, pistol. It was his love gun. And that was a song. And the thing about it is he tells the same story at every show. Right. And he, sometimes it's a woman in a hotel. Sometimes he goes to a doctor's office and it's the nurse. Yeah. Like it, it's all the same shit, and it's just so, it, it's just so cringe now. I can't even imagine, you know, in the in the future what it will be like. Um, looking at their early albums and looking at their uh, those good songs like "Deuce and Strutter" and and some of the other really good things that like "Parasite" that you highlighted on "Alive," I think people are just going to look back and just go, "This was a novelty act. This was a this is a, a bunch of goofs." Right. You know that you know had a bunch of phonies, and they had a couple yeah. of songs of questionable origin. And did Bob Ezrin write them? Did they write them? Was there secret people playing on these albums? They weren't live, and like the whole thing will just be painted with that phony patina. And I do think that that merits, among many other things, going short uh, on this long term. So that's where I would uh, come out of this at the end of the at the end of the tunnel.
3: Yeah, makes sense. I think I think I just you know uh, I think as far as that early phenomenon i i think uh yeah what they did later definitely didn't help um but i uh and, you know and 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 the whole manufactured aspect too i think it's uh problematic but i don't know i think overall I, they just edge it out for me
2: fair enough all right well on yep. that note we'll wrap up uh, today's episode uh thank you for hanging there with us uh today we know uh it was probably a little rough given this is our first uh pass here and we'll yeah. hopefully get better over time. So thank you for hanging in there and hanging with us.
3: Yeah, we need we need Eddie Kramer to come in and and, and overdub some stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah.
3: <laughs> exactly. Well, there'll be some overdubs. This will this will not
2: be alive. live. Uh this will not be live. It'll be like a live actually, where well, we're going to uh recreate whatever we need to do to give you that uh, to give you that live feeling listener out there of being in the room with us and enjoying our uh, bubbly personalities and and Paul Stanley's lovely stage banner. So thank you all. We'll see you next time. Uh, We'll figure out what that is going to be, but we got a lot of ideas and catch you later.
3: All right.